0: Well, good morning, welcome back to BUILD, um, and uh, I know this is a time of year where it begins to be darker when we, when we wake up, it gets to, starts to be a little bit colder, although not yet, and it starts to be harder to get here on a, a Saturday morning. I already felt the effects of that this morning, slept through my alarm, and since it wasn't bright outside, you know, my body didn't want to wake up, so uh, it's starting, but uh, appreciate your faithfulness in being here. Um, Want to start by just reminding ourselves of our build disciplines. We want to be reminded of our purpose here, why we're getting up so early on Saturday mornings. We're here hopefully out of a desire to grow in faithfulness and to build and strengthen the disciplines of faithful men who are prepared to be faithful leaders in their home and in the church. And that starts with ourselves. And it's difficult to lead others well, to lead others faithfully, if we're not an example that's worth following. An example that points others back to Christ, so that's where we start. And so on the back of your binder, you should be able to see all five of these disciplines. Uh, we'll just, discipline one is the heart. We've been talking a lot about the heart leading up to this. The faithful leader shepherds his heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God. Um, we want to kind of make ourselves think through these by opening up to Second Peter chapter 1. We'll be spending some time, a bit of time this morning, looking at together verses 1 through 8. So if you're there, um, we'll start in the latter half verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right, Peter is writing to those who have received the gift of faith. You know, this, is, this is the faith that, notice, is received. Um, that's a brief way to highlight God's sovereignty in this faith. It was a gift, not a man's undoing, but God's. As men coming before God's word, we must shepherd our hearts to think rightly about God and rightly about man, and about how my salvation is an undeserved gift from which gratitude flows, which causes me to worship. What more can be said of this faith? Notice Peter says in verse 1, It is a faith of the same kind as the apostles. There's no distinction between the faith of Peter's readers and the apostles. Peter's not talking about the amount of faith, but rather the object and basis of that faith, even the content of that faith. There was a common, shared faith, grounded in the same apostolic truth and teaching. We could say in our context, there was a shared biblical faith. We're not blazing our own trail and inventing our own ideas of faith and religion, but we share in the same faith that was passed down to us from Jesus to the apostles and prophets and found in Scripture. Actually, Peter will exhort believers along those same lines in chapter 3. Look at the latter part of verse 1. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your version probably says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior. And if that's the proper understanding, then the idea is that the basis by which we can exercise faith is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that's certainly true. You might also have a marginal note that indicates that the preposition could also be in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, In that case, the meaning would be more along the lines of the object of our faith and trust is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In either case, uh, both are true. Um, Christ, the, or the grounds and of our faith is the righteousness of Christ, and the object of our hope and our trust is the righteousness of Christ, not our own. Peter calls believers' attention here to their own salvation. When we were made like Peter says of himself, slaves of Jesus Christ like Peter through faith in Christ and his righteousness. And going on to verse 2, verse two and 3, we see several mercies of God to the believer in Christ that accompany this faith. In verse 2, Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Believers receive grace and and peace from God. That's true, but Peter prays here for an ever-increasing abundance of grace and peace for these believers that would that would flow to them through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. right? And, that, and that's instructive as to what type of faith Peter is speaking about. It is a faith rooted in the knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and also from the prior verse, God's righteousness. In verse 3, Peter reminds these believers of the rich and sufficient supply of this grace and peace that's found in the knowledge of our our God. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God's power that was able to save us didn't stop there. But his divine power has also given us everything we need for the realm of life and godliness. Life and godliness really describes the realm of sanctification. Um, the realm where we live out the Christian life in a mixed condition, having a new heart, new desires, but still living with remaining and dwelling sin. Right? It's that, that point between initial salvation and final glorification. And with this gift of new life in Christ came Everything related to sustaining that life all the way to glorification. Right? And for me, I don't know about you, this is to me one of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture to bolster our trust and our dependence upon the Lord and upon His ample supply when we're faced with temptation, when we are discouraged in our fight to put sin to death. God has given believers everything pertaining to life and godliness. We cannot claim that our sin and our failure are the result of God's limited provision. Um, There's no temptation, no assault to Satan that is beyond our resources, not in ourselves, but in Christ, to overcome. But notice again the means by which we receive this rich supply. The true knowledge of him. Our knowledge of God is an indispensable part of the abundant provision from God in our fight for personal holiness and sanctification. In verse 4, Peter further explains the source of this knowledge and also God's aim in providing this knowledge. Verse 4, For by these, that is, his attributes of glory and excellence in the prior verse, He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. We have received the true knowledge of God found in the precious and magnificent promises of Scripture so that we would be sharers, participants, have fellowship in the divine nature. And that is that that we would resemble our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The goal of God's gracious provision in his word is that we would be like his son, Jesus, escaping the corruption that is in the world by lust. Right. And that's the proper effect of the knowledge of God. When we come in front of God's word, that we would encounter the God of his word when we open our Bibles, that we would grow in our knowledge of him, that we we should worship him for his grace and mercy. And that God would use it to bring about Christ's likeness in our own lives. But how, how do we get from knowledge of God to Christ's likeness Let's keep looking. Let's look at verse 5. Now for this very reason also, that is, the reason that we be, so that we become sharers of the divine nature, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your excellence... Moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness What does the process look like for the believer to whom faith has been given on the basis of Christ's righteousness On whom grace has been poured out richly and supplied for sanctification through the knowledge of God Through his provision of the scriptures What does the process look now like for him to now be made more like God to be made holy it looks like worshipful, grace-enabled, scripture-dependent, diligent labor. Applying all diligence. It's a diligent pursuit of moral excellence. A diligent pursuit of holy living. A diligent pursuit of the knowledge of God, self-control and perseverance. This is the faithful leader that shepherds his heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God, in a daily, diligent pursuit. This is discipline one. This is why we put such emphasis on a disciplined pursuit of God through His Word, as well as a disciplined meditation on it, and a pursuit of godly character, a disciplined pursuit of prayer. Oftentimes in your homework, not every assignment, but a lot of your homework assignments will actually have you write out a prayer on the basis of the Scripture that you just read. It's part of this diligent pursuit But our pursuit of the Lord doesn't stop at just our own personal holiness. Keep reading in verse 7. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. These are the relationships in your homes and in the church. Your personal holiness will have an overflow effect into your various spheres of influence. That brings us to Disciplines 2 and Disciplines 3. The faithful man of God brings the same level of diligent care that he brings to his own heart into his relationships in his home and in the church. Discipline 2 there on the back for you, if you still have your binders handy, is the home. The faithful leader is concerned for those in his home and shepherds them toward God with the Word of God and the ministry. With a heart and home oriented toward toward God and his word, the faithful leader steps into the GBC family to shepherd others toward God with the word of God. Verse 8 continues. Back to 2 Peter. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, and this is what build is all about. It's building faithful disciplines in the men of GPC. The man who is useful and fruitful in his own home, and useful and fruitful in the church, is a man who is growing in diligence, who is growing in moral excellence and godliness and self-control and in perseverance and in brotherly kindness. And the useful and fruitful man who is growing in faithfulness and all these qualities. Is a type of man that is already pursuing the type of character of a qualified deacon or elder in the church. And in the same way, he's setting his eyes on diligent and prayerful pursuit of those biblical qualifications. So that if the Lord wills, he would be able to step into greater areas of accountability within the body of Christ. And that's that's, that's step four, the qualifications. The faithful leader prayerfully pursues the character of a qualified deacon or elder in the church according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. A man that is looked at for potential leadership in the body of Christ is one who is caring well for his own heart with God's word, who cares well for those in his own home with God's word, as well as those in the church body. And he is one characterized by diligently pursuing godly character. And one way he does this is by accurately handling the Word of God in his own life and with others. And that brings us to the fifth discipline, the hermeneutic. The faithful leader disciplines himself to carefully interpret the Word of God to discover what God meant by what God said in His Word. And it can easy, be easy to think that this one doesn't fit with the others. Right? Isn't this more of a skill than a spiritual character or spiritual discipline or character issue? We spent our opening time looking at the first eight verses of 2 Peter. but I want to just turn now to the, the closing verses of this book, which uh, we had time to look in between. We will do that in future weeks. But starting in verse 2 of chapter 3 of, of 2 Peter, Peter shows us the inseparable connection between our knowledge and handling of God's word and our character. Verse 14 of chapter 3, Therefore, beloved, since you Look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures." to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing the beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter Closes his letter pointing out the inseparable connection between our diligent pursuit of godly character. Verse 14, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless. Between our diligent pursuit of godly character and our faithful handling of God's word. Right? Scripture can be difficult to interpret at times. Verse 16, he speaks of that, he speaks of sections of Paul that are difficult to understand. Notice that he's what Paul wrote, he places at the same level as all other scripture. But scripture can be difficult; requires effort to faithfully interpret. Um, but this is the living word of God, and our knowledge of God isn't academic exercise. The, the stakes couldn't actually be higher when we interpret God's word. Uh, there are those, notice in verse sixteen, who distort the scripture, resulting in what? Their own destruction. And there are also those who are carried away by the air of others, and maybe it doesn't lead to their destruction, but it leads to a fall from their own steadfastness. Uh, To put it another way, they're no longer persevering. Their failure to handle God's Word rightly, to recognize error had an impact upon their faithful, diligent perseverance. And just in the words of chapter 1, it... If they're no longer persevering in diligence, what did they become in terms of chapter one? Useless and unfruitful. Right? Perseverance is one of those qualities that they're yours and increasing, they render you neither fruitless or unfruitful, or useless or unfruitful. But if you are characterized by a lack of it, then the opposite is true. So Paul exhorts his readers in closing. Verse 17 and 18, two final admonitions. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. As well as, back up to verse 17, I skip verse 17. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. Um, and this is where it all comes back to discipline one. The heart. The faithful leader of God shepherding his heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God. Only the Word of God can keep us from error, and only through God's Word can we actually grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, we want to, we want to keep our eyes on these things and, and put them together to see how the Bible describes us, our diligent pursuit of these character, of, of these disciplines in the life of, of a believer, so that we would be faithful men who are not useless, who are not unfruitful, but were able to be of use Not because of what we have to offer, but because of what God has done in us in the body of Christ. Alright, so
1: I titled this topic Zero Tolerance um, Combating Sexual Sin in Your Home and in Your Heart and I want to sit in this topic for a while. I have 14 pages of notes, which means we're probably going to be done a little late today. Um, If you need to leave at 9 sharp that's fine. The best part's on the last page, and you'll miss it, but <laughs> I saved it for last. Um, so why did I want to switch up things and, and talk about this? Um, in the last year, some of the heaviest shepherding situations I've been in have involved sexual sin. Um, I don't want to create a scale of this is worse sin or others aren't worse sin, but the sexual sin that we've had to deal with, Um, recently, is not just the seedlings of this sin, but it's someone who allowed this sin to take root and grow um, to a point where there was a lot of destructiveness that came from it. Yeah, Jesus taught us clearly about this sin. The sin, responses to this sin is throughout all of Scripture. And, and so we need to talk about this sin. Many times, sexual sin can feel like a sin without consequences. Uh, but that's not true. If you're entrapped by it, the consequences, the wake of what this sin can do to the people around you, is, is, is scary. And, and another reason I wanted to talk about this is I feel a burden for the next generation of kids coming up in this church, of boys, girls coming up in this church in a context that if I grew up in it, I don't even know what would have happened to me. I mean, when I think about my teenage years, there wasn't such a thing as the internet. There kind of was. um, But it wasn't the way it is now. Uh, And now most of these kids have every immorality known to man walking around with them in their pockets. Uh, And so we need to To think about how are we shepherding our home in a different way than I think even I had to think about it with my oldest. Uh, It's getting it's scary what our kids could be subjected to, and so that's why a piece of this is to talk about the home. Um, And and most importantly, the reason I want to talk about this is Scripture is very clear that God's will for us is sanctification in the area of sexual purity. And so let, let's talk about it. So to start, I want to just define what sexual immorality is and what sexual purity is. Um, the best definition I found out there on what sexual immorality includes is it is craving sexually what God has forbidden. Sexual immorality is craving sexually what God has forbidden let's look at some examples of that I think an easy one to look at in this church with our position on um, how to read scripture is homosexuality uh, it's not necessarily an easy one in the church abroad and that's weird to me uh, Romans 1 22 through 27 um, Scott when he preached through that was very clear that passage is very clear sexual immorality is, um, is is sin Another example of this is lustful passion um, Turn with me to 1st Thessalonians 4 to read verses three through eight Um, but at this point we're going to be in this in this passage a couple of times this morning at this point I just want to highlight verse five it says for this is the will of God your sanctification starting in verse three that is that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God that no man transgresses and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The phrase in verse 5, lustful passion, is full of disdain. And verse 7 shows the gravity of it. So obviously, lustful passion is a mark of sexual immorality. The next example of what God has forbidden um, is a word that we don't use much in our society, but is very clear and common in biblical contexts. The word is fornication. Um, in general, it refers to every kind of illegal sexual intercourse. That is, any intercourse except that between a man and his wife, a husband and his wife. In 1 Corinthians, the context suggests that Paul used the word in reference to all sort of illicit sexual activity. 1 Corinthians 7.2, Paul used the plural Greek word for fornications to imply the various ways in which that the sin may manifest itself. He thus gave a reason why people in Corinth should marry and live together properly. One of the sins included, um, the word's general sense, is adultery. Jesus' list of defiling sins that proceeds out of a person's heart includes fornication and adultery. And so this is much, much more than just adultery. It's all of the seedlings that get you to the point where adultery becomes okay. It is craving any form of sexual act, thoughts, or impulses that is outside of God's design for sexual purity. So, what is God's design for sexual purity? I'm glad you asked. Um, God's design. We could go all over Scripture. What I wanted to look at was the qualifications of an elder and a deacon in First Timothy three. Um, and you're thinking, but I'm not an elder or a deacon. However, the qualifications are a place to look at God's definition of holy living. He desires that the church is led by men that are marked by these attributes. If we're looking for a standard for sexual purity, this is exactly where we should go. So, 1 Timothy 3, two says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate prudent respectable hospitable able to teach and then jumping down to verse 12 it says deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households this was a problem or a concern among the early church the believers came out of heavy pagan life where sexual immorality was rampant the elder had to be a man who stood out stark and clear from that in order to be exemplary for the rest of the believers. One woman man was Paul's way of describing this. The description is about much more than how many wives he has. The man's sexual moral life is devoted to and committed to only one woman. That's just the kind of pure man that he is. A single man must be this way. He doesn't yet know who that one woman is. But when that kind of one-woman man marries, he will be pure in his marriage and will be exemplary for others. He is to be a one-woman man in the sense that he is completely satisfied to romance, be emotionally attached to, and sexually given to only one woman, his wife. If a man is not married, he is controlling himself by God's grace to love someday that one woman who will be his wife. Gentiles in the first century would have found this qualification repugnant. Again, as a husband of one wife, this means that I am completely satisfied to love only one woman in this life, my wife. I restrain my romantic, sexual, and emotional thoughts and desires to be exclusively for my wife. Sexual purity is restraining my romantic, sexual, and emotional thoughts and desires to be exclusively for my wife. That's the standard. The standard isn't to let your mind wander throughout the day and then go home to your wife. The standard isn't um, some threshold that you've created in your own mind that that's the place I'm not going to go past. The standard is to restrain my romantic, sexual, and emotional thoughts and desires to be exclusively for my wife whether I'm married or not. Um, the next section of this lesson I've put together four reasons why sexual sin is worse than you think. Um, I think this is a sin that we tend to downplay at the at the seedling level. I don't think any man in this room is going to say oh, well, adultery is okay. Um, And I don't think most men in this room are going to say that acting, self-pleasure, things like that are okay for us to do. But I think we allow it to be, in our own minds, not as bad as we think. And so I want to look at Scripture and see in Scripture how destructive any seedling of sexual sin is. I want to start with the destructive power it had over some of the heroes of the faith. Um, it is interesting to me, and as I was doing the study, I mean, I, th- I think I grabbed three, I could have grabbed 20. I could have just done a lesson on how sexual sin messed up all these heroes of the faith. Um, and so let's, well, actually, I'm gonna kind of skip over Abraham, um, but we, we know the story of Abraham. We don't have time to go into the whole mess, so let's just say that Abram could have told Sarai that she had a terrible idea for him to sleep with Hagar. Uh, he could have said, just trust God in his purposes, and the whole Ishmael debacle would have been, de- would have been avoided. Uh, but he didn't. And then looking at David, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we know this story well. Um, we could break down this story and talk through all of the things that you could do to avoid sexual sin that David didn't do. If I were sitting across from David, I'd have some practical questions for him like, what were you doing staying home? Why didn't you go to war like you were supposed to? So many times you showed yourself to fear God and keep his commandments. Why'd you allow yourself to fall at this point? I'm really curious what his conversations with Solomon were when he asked, how'd you and mommy meet? Um, And actually, let's turn there. Go to 1 Kings chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way for all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do. And wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk with before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So what happened to Solomon? David went on in this chapter to give instructions. And Solomon carried some of those instructions out, or most of those instructions out. But let's actually jump back to Deuteronomy 17. I need, well, it might be too late, but you can keep your finger in first Kings, we're going to come back there. deuteronomy 17 starting in verse 17 this is talking about the kings of israel and these are some instructions for the for impending it says he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself Now it shall come about that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, That is, his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the left or to the right so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So David gave instruction to Solomon to obey God's commands. The next thing he did was handwrite the entirety of what was scripture at the time. In that was this commandment. And then, in verse three one, well, actually, let's just let's jump to the end. First Kings eleven. What happens to Solomon? I'll read verses one through six. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sid, Sidonite, or Sidin, i don't know—Sidonian, Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from their, your heart, away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wife turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned, to, turned his hearts away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father, had been. Verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully, as David, his father, has done. Solomon didn't obey the command to avoid these women, and he ran to it. And he didn't do that all at once. He did it immediately, but he didn't do it all at once. And that's where I want to look at one. Shortly after, like one of his first acts as king, something like his seventh act as king, he formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord in the wall around Jerusalem. For political purposes, he immediately married outside of Israel. He thought he was doing a good thing, probably, um, but it was a direct um, opposition to the command he was given and he was instructed from the get-go. It didn't take Solomon time to give room for his heart to be turned away. Sexual sin had destructive power over many of the heroes of the faith. And if Abraham, David, and Solomon fell, what makes you think you're not at risk? The next reason that sexual sin is worse than you think is because of the way Jesus took sexual sin seriously. Turn to Matthew 5. We'll start in verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell." This isn't hyperbole. Jesus in this entire passage is saying that a standard for holiness is not to avoid the penultimate moment of sin, but to put to death anything that gives you a path towards sin. This is the seriousness towards sin that, frankly, we're not quick to take. Think about the last time you talked about sin in your small group. Were you devastated by your sin? I mean, the topic today is sexual immorality. But the tools that we're going to talk about and the disposition towards sin applies to all of our sin. Uh, Are we taking the right kind of response towards sin in our own lives? When we see sin, do we have a tendency to overlook it? Are you willing to tear your eye out and throw it across the room because it causes you to stumble? Please don't literally do that. That would be gross. But it's the gravity of the situation. The next reason why sexual sin is worse than you think is that it's unmistakably connected to God's will for your life. We looked at this passage earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4. I read it before. I'm not going to read the entirety again. But I do want to read the first two verses. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? That's a common question. But God's will for your life is very clear. Be sanctified. Specifically, abstain from sexual immorality. If you need another reason to avoid sexual sin then you're not seeing God rightly. The fourth reason it's worse than you think is sexual sin lies to you about its impact. Do you think when David slept with Bathsheba, he did it with the idea that he'd eventually be willing to kill Uriah to cover it up? Do you think when Solomon married the Pharaoh's daughter, he thought it would be the first in a long line of women that would eventually turn his heart away from the Lord. And do you think that when you take a long look at a woman that is not your wife, there are no ramifications for your soul? Let's look at Proverbs 7 together. Solomon, who did not battle sexual sin well, instructed his son and brought the wisdom of Solomon to bear in this situation. Proverbs 7, Solomon is instructing his son, and he talks of a harlot that is enticing a young man that lacks sense. Why does this young man lack sense? Well, he put himself in a situation to talk to a harlot. For sin to lie to us, we have to give it an ear. We have to listen to it. Let's start in verse 13. So she, the harlot, seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Stop there. A peace offering is a covenant meal which served to affirm the relationship between the worshiper, God, and the community of believers. The harlot, in her pitch to this senseless young man, makes herself out to be a God worshiper. And then jumping down to verse 18, she says, Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he'll come back. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. An ox going to the slaughter is fooled into thinking that he's not going to his death. The young man is persuaded and enticed into sexual sin. And then in verse 25 it says, Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are victims she has cast down, and numerous are also her slain. Her house <laughs> is the house of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. She lies to you and tells you that it isn't as bad as you think and that there will be delights with sexual sin. But what is the truth? The truth is that it's a pathway to hell. Sin is a path to death. First Thessalonians 4.8 says, He who rejects this, talking about the will of God, sanctification, avoiding sexual immorality. He who rejects this is not rejecting man but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This leads me to ask you a question. What's your biggest problem? Is it a tough day at work? A leaking roof? Disobedient children? Sickness? Death? The truth is, your biggest problem is a pathway to hell. Sin. Ed Welch reminds us in his book addictions a banquet to the grave if sin is not our core problem the gospel itself the thing of first importance is marginalized the good news that Jesus proclaimed and offered is that there is forgiveness of sins not through our own attempts to please God but by placing our confidence in Jesus himself in his death and resurrection if sin is not our primary problem then the gospel of Jesus is no longer the most important event in all of human history. Do you try to downplay your battle with sexual sin? Don't downplay any sin. Jesus didn't. He went to the cross to die for that sin. And sexual sin lies to us about its impact. So you're thinking, okay, I get it. I need to battle sin. Um, how do I do that? Scripture drips with that instruction. Uh, I have an hour, so and I, I don't even know where I'm at. I have forty minutes, um, and and so I've got uh, I think five tools I put in here. I think at one point had something like 11 tools to battle sexual sin and decided that you guys did want to go home today. So um, I cut some of them. So let's work our way through some of these tools to combat sexual sin in our hearts. Um, the first tool is to cultivate godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians 7. We're going to parachute into a passage that later this year Denny will use as a primary source for a lesson on repentance. So I don't want to steal too much from that lesson, but I want to talk about what godly sorrow is. In this section, Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth that he has seen biblical, true biblical repentance within that body. And he starts that encouragement with an explanation of what is godly sorrow. So let's read 2 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 10 together. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter... I did not regret it. Um, he wrote a letter confronting sin, and he said he didn't regret causing them sorrow for that letter. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Biblical repentance requires a sorrow that is according to the will of God. The word sorrow is mentioned eight times in verses 8 through 11. That tells me that it's more than just a mark of repentance, but it's an overarching prerequisite for repentance. So how does godly sorrow act towards sinners? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. In verse 9 it says that. Genuine repentance will inevitably require and involve godly sorrow. It has to. Note the extremes in verse 7. Involved where genuine repentance is found. Rejoice, mourning, sorrowful. There is a sorrow to rejoice over, and that sorrow leads to the destination of repentance. Godly sorrow brings good. This is a sorrow you want, a sorrow you can rejoice over, a sorrow you only gain from and never lose from, a sorrow you'll never regret. This is the sorrow that you experience when you have genuine repentance. The world has its own sorrow and is the opposite of good sorrow. The world's sorrow leads to death, spiritual and physical. What is the world's sorrow? Sorry it got caught. Maybe sorry it's losing its pet sin. There is no strain of joy in their sorrow, no sweetness in their bitterness, only regret in their sorrow. This sorrow is evidence that the worldly one lost something, suffered a loss, and the sin that he didn't want to give up. This is a dangerous sorrow, sorrow associated with death. There is a blessed sorrow that leads to repentance. And there is a cursed sorrow that should be repented of, the sorrow of this world. I listened to, a few years ago I listened to a podcast from a non-believer who was a recovering drug addict. When you hear him talk about it, um, you can hear him missing drugs. Uh, He actually tries to talk people on the podcast into doing drugs uh, because he talks about how great they are. And he's like, I just couldn't control myself, but but he loves his old drugs. Um, This is the world's version of repentance, not God's. Christians do not look at their sin with longing. They don't miss it. They look at their sin for what it is and say, I have sinned against Yahweh. Godly sorrow produces repentance, humility, and unity. When repentance comes, you will know, because you will have a sorrowful heart that is also joyful to not be going any longer in the direction that sin has taken you. A sorrow that won't regret turning from your sin, that won't leave you feeling like you've lost anything, but only gained. A sorrow that is in alignment with God's will. Christian, you should be saying, I feel godly sorrow for my sin because it put my Savior on the cross. I am sorrow, sorry that as a redeemed believer in Christ, I still treasure myself and things of this world more than my Savior. I don't want to run from the world and towards my Savior. That's what godly sorrow produces. I believe that the first fruit of repentance is godly sorrow. It's not a turning from your sin. My coffee shop's like four doors down from an AA facility. And so I see people standing outside all the time smoking cigarettes, Um They're turning, many of them, I believe there's saved people there, probably, but many of them are turning from alcoholism without godly sorrow. And what they're doing is picking one vice for another. They've not truly repented before a holy God. You cannot repent before a holy God if you have not cultivated a hatred for your sin the way God hates it. And that leads to the next tool in our tool chest to be able to combat sexual sin. Is to recognize that this is a problem of worship, not discipline. If you're caught in a trap of addiction to porn or sexual sin, you have a worship problem. You have a disorder, and it's a worship disorder. You worship yourself and your own desire instead of worshiping the one true God. Ed Welch puts it this way in his book, Addictions, A Banquet to the Grave. It's a pretty good book. It's actually on uh, fighting alcoholism. That's the primary point of the book. But there's a lot of things that I drew from from for this lesson, because sexual immorality is generally an addiction. Um, And it's certainly a banquet to the grave. So, um, any... Sinful addiction is one that will lead to death. Okay, the quote. Sin, by its very nature, is more often quiet and secretive than loud and public. For every overt episode of rage, there are dozens of jealousies, manipulations, white lies, and malicious thoughts, none of which immediately register on the conscience. And according to scripture, the greatest sin of all is even more covert. I do not love the Lord my God with my whole mind and heart. If our failure to consistently worship the true God is the key feature of sin, we are all sinners. This is an issue of idolatry. We are idolizing our desires over God's designs. The question we have to answer when it comes to our battle against sexual immorality is Is who will you worship. We need to choose this day who we will serve. God or our sinful desires. Turn with me to Judges 17. And as you're turning there, let me talk about the passage. This story begins with a man named Micah confessing to his mother that he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from her. She had spoken a curse over the unknown person that stole her money, but that now quickly changes to a blessing over her son for confessing the theft. Let's pick up this passage in verse 3. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So he stole it from her. She gave it back and said, let's worship the Lord by breaking the second commandment and making a graven image. And reading on, it gets better. Micah goes on to make an ephod, a shrine and household idols, and then made his son a priest over all of these idols. And this still wasn't good enough. He paid a Levite who was supposed to debt his, his life to the worship of God to become the priest over this household of graven image. Talk about a lesson in missing a point. This commandment-breaking idol was supposed to be a dedication to the Lord, but the story isn't about that at all. The star of the story is the household's dedication to idol worship. When we Read verse 6. It says, In those days there was no king of Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Simple logic would tell us that what was right in Micah's eyes is not right in God's eyes. Micah was an idolater. His and his mom's sense of worship were way off the mark. And this seems like an extreme example. A man steals from his mom, gives it back, and they spend their lives worshiping an idol as a result. It would be easy to read this story, think, well, those people are crazy, and move on to Judges 18. But let's put this story through the grid of sexual sin. When you look at pornography, or allow sinful thoughts to cultivate in your mind, you are, against all conventional wisdom, worshipping yourself instead of God. The question I have is, why? Why? Why was it so easy to put those images in the place of worship over God? Why are we, as John Calvin says, factories of idols? Why is it so easy to put the lusts of this world on a pedestal over the Lord of the universe? I believe this is because we have a wrong or insufficient view of God and his saving work on the cross. If we take the time to remember that any form of sexual sin not just adultery or that threshold we've created in our mind that's telling us that this part of the sin is okay. If we take any form of sexual sin, we remember that this is short of the God's standards. and God in his perfect plan went to the cross to suffer and die in place of the punishment we deserve. How can we do anything except worship him? How can we worship ourselves when we remember that he asks us to put our faith and trust in that death on the cross and we'll be saved? 1 John 5.21 warns the believer to guard yourself from idols. The way he asks us to do that is to worship the God that has saved you and changed you. To take your eyes off of the horizontal and direct them vertically. Number three, we need to strengthen our faith. Matthew 28 29 we've read it a couple of times says that it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two Jesus says that if you don't fight this sin with the kind of seriousness that is willing to gouge out your eye you will go to hell and suffer there forever he's saying don't put your faith in the moment of salvation don't take comfort that without a life that battles sin with the seriousness that it could Don't take comfort that a life without a battle of sin won't send you to hell. That's a double negative, sorry. You have to battle sin. (laughs) John Piper put it this way, faith delivers from hell, and the faith that delivers from hell delivers from lust. I do not mean that our faith produces a perfect flawlessness in this life, I mean that it produces a persevering fight. The evidence of justifying faith is that it fights lust. Jesus didn't say that lust would entirely vanish. He said that the evidence of being heaven-bound is that we gouge out our eye rather than settle for a pattern of lust. To put it more succinctly, the battle against sin is a battle against unbelief. We need to strengthen our faith to battle sexual sin properly. We need to believe that the promises of God are more powerful than the promises of lust. The next tool is to remember that temptations aren't the problem. The real problem, the real enemy, is a depraved desire. The challenge before us is to not merely do what God says because he is God but to desire what God says because he is glorious. The challenge is to not pursue righteousness, but to prefer righteousness. John Street makes an analogy in his book on this. um, And I actually brought it up here. So I read like five books, listened to, I can't tell you how many sermons and lessons as I prepared for this And I think this book is the best one out there, although I told Jenna it's about twice as long as it probably needs to be, but I feel like that with most books. Um, The first third of this book was really focused on how do we shepherd our heart um, in a battle for sin, and it does a great job. It is written to a counselor, not necessarily to the sinner, Um, so you have to remember that as you read it, but it's it's a very good book. I think we've only got like three or four on the book table, so if you, want to push someone out of your way after we're done to steal it I mean buy it Um, go for it so in that book um, on page 63 I'll read you a pretty long quote but he he makes a great analogy in in understanding where the battle place of this sin takes where the battlefield of this sin takes place He says, Conquering lust is a matter of identifying the right enemy and knowing the battlefield. In the past, the United States has gone to war against formidable and threatening enemies. Dates such as December 7th, 1941, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, and September 11th, 2001, when terrorists attacked the mainland, will live in infamy for Americans. Once the enemies were identified and the battlefields pinpointed, retribution began in earnest. As the battles progressed, media outlets gave reports about the difficulty of finding attacking elusive Japanese fighter planes over the Pacific or Taliban warriors hiding in caves of the rugged mountains of Afghanistan. Most strategists agreed that the wars would be long and arduous. Merely bombing from above would never dislodge the entrenched enemy. As in most wars, it required a perilous and treacherous scheme dropping soldiers into enemy territory, moving cave to cave, rooting out the adversary. So what is the real enemy for the sexually enslaved person? It isn't Hollywood, it isn't internet pornography, it isn't even Satan himself. These only provide opportunity. The real enemy is your depraved desire, your own lust. Make no mistake, The vehicles of opportunity are indeed enemies. They're enemies of the Christian, but they will require an ally within you, your heart, in order to be effective. Look at James 1. In verse 13 it says let no one say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust then when lust has conceived it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished it brings forth death Rejecting trust in God leads to succumbing to temptation and sin. Lust and desire, when conceived by carrying away and enticing, and when that carrying away happens, sin enters. We are active in carrying away and allowing ourselves to be enticed by our own lust. Our battlefield is not first at the points of temptation. It's in our own hearts. This is a tool for the battle against sexual sin because we need to not just understand that the issue is one of our desires. But we need to know where the battleground is. We need to see where we're giving the temptations an opportunity to take root and bring our desires in alignment. Out of alignment with God's desires. So am I saying, hey, it's fine to not restrain your internet at home? Am I saying it's fine to go put yourself in the world and to watch inappropriate movies? Absolutely not. Um, Matthew 5 says to gouge out your own eye. The eye is the temptation. We can't ignore that. Um, But the power is not in gouging out the eye. It is in worshiping the one that deserves it. To have the strength to gouge your own eye out, you have to have done the battle in your heart level. You have to have hate the sin so much that you're willing to sacrifice your eye. Um, I think if we know where the battlefield is, we're actually going to be more careful when it comes to temptations. We're going to be more restrictive when it comes to things that we allow things to get into our mind. If we know that the battlefield is in my heart, not in my internet access, then I'll be armed for the battle when I'm not on the internet. I will not give the enemy an opportunity for a sneak attack. As soon as I let my guard down, your guard will never be down because you know where your heart is. The challenge before us is to not merely do what God says because he is God but to desire what God says because he is glorious. i said this before. The challenge is to not pursue righteousness but to prefer it. The next tool is to understand the true source of happiness. For the sake of time I'm going to bounce through a few verses in Proverbs but before I do that Um, Remember the harlot in Proverbs 7? One of the lies of the harlot is that we would delight together. Sin tells you there will be happiness. You will enjoy doing it. If sin didn't convince us of happiness, we wouldn't do it. Why would we? But let's look at a few verses and see what Scripture teaches us about the source of gladness, the source of happiness, the source of delight the hope of the righteous is gladness but the expectation of the wicked perishes that's proverbs ten twenty-eight. proverbs 13 9a the light of the righteous rejoices but the lamp of the wicked goes out proverbs 23 15 my son if your heart is wise my own heart will also be glad proverbs sixteen twenty b he who gives attention to the word will find good and blessed is he who trusts in the lord There are two common themes in these Proverbs, and I cut a lot out. Um, The theme is happiness and righteousness. You see gladness, you see delight, you see righteousness side by side, consistently throughout the book of Proverbs. The lie sin tells us is that we'll enjoy it, but the reality is we'll enjoy fleeing it. John Piper put it this way. By the way, I haven't read Future Grace in a really long time, so I'm not sure that I'd still recommend that book. Um, But he has a chapter on lust that might be the best just little tidbit, template on dealing with this. Um, And he says, At first, lust begins to trick me into feeling that I would really miss out on some great satisfaction if I followed the path of purity. But then I take up my sword of the Spirit and begin to fight. I read that it is better to gouge out my eye than to lust. I read that if I think about things that are pure and lovely and excellent, the peace of God will be with me, Philippians 4.8. I read that setting the mind on the flesh brings death, but setting the mind on the spirit brings life and peace, Romans 8.6. I read that lust wages war against my soul, 1 Peter 2.11. And that pleasures of this life chokes out the life of the Spirit. Luke 8.14 But best of all, I read that God with holds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84.11 And that the pure in heart will see God. Matthew 5.8 The sword of the Spirit carves the sugar coating off the poison of lust. I see it for what it is, and its alluring power is broken. Piper does an amazing job of summarizing many passages that can remind us of what the battle against lust is. In fact, let me just read those verses so you can put them in your notes. Um, I'm just going to list the actual locations of the verses. I'm not going to read them all because um, I'll really go over. Um, but let me list the lo- those verses so you can have them in the- your notes. It would be good to memorize this list. Philippians 4.8 Romans 8.6 1 Peter 2.11 Luke 8.14 Psalm 84.11 and Matthew 5.8 What's interesting about that quote is the number of times John Piper said, I read, I read, I read. We need to read, read, read. Oh, that's interesting. Page 14 of my notes is not here. Alright, I'm going to do it from memory. The last section that I want to talk about is how to shepherd your home. Um, It's actually kind of an abbreviated (laughs) section, so it's okay. Um, I was planning on Having this be a third of the message, and the reality is I knew I was going to run out of time um, i've had I've three kids they're in their later one's twenty one's sixteen and one's fourteen and it's been interesting as they 've grown up to think about how do I shepherd my home in a way that is going to um, protect them from sexual sin, and there's been a few places where I've battled my own heart in this. Um, It is surprising to me that a battle um, in my own heart against the fear of man needs to happen with my kids. Um, Recently Jenna Jenna had a conversation with my daughter And she said, as she was going into the conversation, Jenny, you can do this. Don't fear this conversation. It's an important conversation to have. She had to give herself a pep talk to talk to our 14-year-old girl that we talked about everything to. And I found myself put off conversations I needed to have with my kids because I just didn't want to walk into the awkward. Um, There's so many kids in this church we cannot put off the conversations. We cannot allow fear of man to take hold in our own hearts when it comes to parenting our kids. Um, and we can't be lazy about it. You know, there's one. Hey! Yeah, I mean, I. It's not I, your notes, but it's
0: everybody else's notes.
1: Well, that's. Is that.? Yeah, that's it. That actually is a starting point. I'm really curious where my last page is. I wonder if I ran out of paper in the printer. Anyway. Okay. Um, well, but yeah, so we need to put to death fear of man when it comes to talking to our kids. Um, we need to make room for conversations that we have with our kids. And we need to make room for those conversations at a really young age. One of the best tools that I did um, with my kids was a weekly meeting with them when they were too young to pay attention to me. Um, we'd go out for ice cream, and I think they were more excited to get ice cream than with Dad than to read God's Word. Um, But that has been a context for so many good conversations. And as they've gotten older, it turns into Jonathan getting home, and I usually wait up for him no matter when he gets home. Um, It's a good reason to have a curfew, frankly. Um, But And just talking about his night, talking about what went on. um, Open conversations about these things have to happen. You can't take a lazy parenting approach to this and just assume they're okay because we talked to them about the gospel. You have to dig deeper with your kids. Um, The next point I have is to not underestimate this issue. Um, And I even would say, don't assume this issue becomes a topic when they hit a certain age. Um, Eden, in third grade, her best... Like, we went to meet the teacher and we looked around the room and there was one lesbian couple in the class, and we're like, oh no. And then Jenna looked on the note card, and the girl's name was Annalise, and that has been Eden's best friend since third grade. Um, so my daughter, we had to talk about what is sexual immorality, what is sexual um, purity, before we talked about sex. Um, it, it, it can't happen too young in today's world. The gender confusion is happening at a crazy young age. That girl, Annalise, has come out as one of the Q plus, I don't even know, I don't even understand what they think their sexual orientation is. And so as we've shepherded Eden through being friends with this girl, um, we've been able to share the gospel with their family. They don't like us very much. Um, But it's, it's created conversations. I wouldn't have expected I had to have it with an eight-year-old and so don't underestimate this issue you know we're seeing throughout the news so many things going on we don't want to lose sight of it Um, and we need to shepherd their heart not just their actions I mean this is common parenting knowledge but when we look at these tools that we're using to put in our own tool chest we need to put these tools in our kids tool chest Um, and we can do that And it's better to do that before the conversation about sexual immorality comes up. Um, We need to be helping our kids understand these things. And then I would just encourage you, err on the side of protection. Um, As we talked about the temptations in our own hearts, in our own lives, and how if you know where the battleground is, um, odds are your kids aren't believers. Um, Some of them are believers at a young age. I was a believer at a young age. Um, But that battleground is in their heart, and they don't know where those temptations are going to come from. So you need to protect them from that. Um, Do what you can to protect them. I I ask my small group, and try to ask them this on a regular basis, probably annually. um, What are you doing to keep pornography out of your household? What are you doing to keep sexual immorality out of your household? It needs to be an active battle um, in your home. Because if you're not putting up guard posts around your home, um, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing as a father. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, your word drips of this, and yet so many men struggle. Lord, thank you for giving us clear instruction. Thank you for going to the cross and giving us the power to battle sin. Lord, thank you for giving us a guide on both the importance of this issue, but also an understanding of how to tackle this issue. Lord, help us become better worshipers of you. Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and our own desires and put them on you and the things that you desire for us. Lord, help us not to believe sin's lie that we will delight in sin. But help us to believe your truth, that we will delight in righteousness. In your name, amen.